Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Dr. Eleanor Yaniger, whom Dan Snow refers to as the most awesome medieval historian in the world. She's a guest lecturer at LSE in the Department of International History. She has a PhD in history. She has a blog called Going Medieval that you definitely should check out because I look at it routinely. Um, she's a co-host of the We're Not So Different podcast. We'll get into exactly what that covers shortly. Um, she has a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash going medieval, which you should definitely consider going and throwing some money at her because money pays for research, and we all like research over here. Um, and she's the author of The Middle Ages, A Graphic History, which came out last year, and of The Once and Future Sex coming out next year, and we will definitely be talking about that. In addition to all of this, she is a presenter of the history hit TV shows Going Medieval and Exploring the Medieval Afterlife. But of course... Regular listeners to the show will know that her main claim to fame is that she appeared on this show in episode 16, which I should say is also one of the top 10 most downloaded episodes of the show so far. So without further ado, Helena, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back, Guy. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, it's nice to see you again. Um, just to orient everyone, uh, mm. whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? So I am in London, uh, like everybody else. I'm very boring. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, on this show, it's fairly unusual to get somebody who lives in London. Oh, that's good. Uh, that's good to know. Uh, I think we've had more people from Australia than from London so far. So. Oh, that's all right. Okay, yeah, yeah. I got that out of my system a few years back, so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's okay. Um, so living in London, mm. uh, you will have had a ringside seat to this extraordinarily medieval experience this country just went through um, with the death of Queen Elizabeth and the accession of King Charles III. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I thought I just, just, I know what I think about it, but Mm -hmm. I, and I've actually read your blog on the subject, so I have a pretty good idea. I know what you think about it, but perhaps not everyone who listens to the show has also read your blog. Yeah. Um, So, what do, you, what do you think about this from your perspective as a medieval historian? 
Um, it's it was quite interesting to me because uh, before uh, before everything happened, you know, in the before times when we were still in the Elizabethan age or what have you, mm -hmm. um, I had always thought, you know, I suppose per from the perspective of an immigrant, um, I had always thought that kind of interest in the queen was sort of like kitsch. I thought it was right. kind of like a, a sort of like camp affectation that everyone was sort of doing for fun. Um, kind of is, <laughs> and, but also not. Uh, but, but then it turns out, you know, um, I suddenly was in the midst of this um, really, uh, you know, uh, the people were genuinely upset. A lot of people were genuinely mm. upset, which I found quite interesting, um, especially from the perspective of someone like me who works specifically on, um, you know, propaganda from varying uh, you know, my, I specialize in the Luxembourgs, but the Windsors, sure, why not, you know? Um, well, I mean, we're all about the Windsors here. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> so um, it was quite interesting to me to sort of watch how effective um, that propaganda has been because, you know, is it, like the number of people who said like, oh, well, she was like my Nana. And I'm like, well, I don't know. My Nanas were, you know, forced to leave what was then Czechoslovakia when the Nazis rolled in slash survived the Blitz in London working as nurses in World War Two, you know, after moving from a farm in Crut, you know. So you forgive me, but she wasn't exactly like my Nanas, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was quite interesting to watch um, this really depth, like it was very depth. Uh, like a, a deft kind of use of propaganda to convince people that they were members of, you know, one of the most powerful families on earth who own most of the land in this country still. And, you know, in the midst of, you know, a cost of living crisis. Uh, so that, that was quite interesting to me. Um, but it was also interesting seeing all the old medieval rituals and kind of understanding at the same time, you know, as critical as I am about, you know, that sentiment, certainly um, on a political level. It is quite interesting seeing all the kind of medieval ritual that's still there and understanding how that would be, um, I suppose, sort of a comforting within... Comforting the, is exactly the word. Yeah, yeah. you know, because so, so here's this thing that's always been happening, right? You know, the, this... Um, even if you've never experienced it, which, let's be fair, the majority of people who are experiencing this death of a monarch have never seen it happen before. But, you know, yeah. kind of knowing that there is um, a way in which things happen, a way in which things are going to unfold and in a particular order is quite interesting. Um, and I was quite interested in all of that. I'd gone down to see uh, the uh, succession, well, the accession uh, things written at the exchange, the royal exchange. And I was quite yeah. into it right at first where it was like... When and it was all um, the men in their livery and, you know, the giant ceremonial mace went by and people were playing trumpets. And I was like, yes, this is great. It's finally it's cool. happening. You know, this is very, very cool. And then the minute when they were talking about how it was Charles's right to accede the throne, I was like, oh, OK, I'm getting grumpy. I better get out of here because, you know, I didn't want to ruin it for everyone else. Like I want I really want people to be able to sort of enjoy it if this is their thing. I don't want to be, you know, the jerk uh, who's yeah. ruining it for yeah, other I mean, people. Don't, don't yuck their yum. Yeah, I exactly, mean, exactly. But, but I like, but I like fundamentally. I'm sorry, I like it if somebody who wears livery carries a ceremonial mace nearby me, and then some trumpets get played. I like that. Yes, right? there, there, I, that, people do, and that's why that's why we have these rituals. I mean, mm -hmm. they are. I mean, the one thing that I think Britain does better than any other country on earth is pageantry, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. you know, yes, there are other countries that have their own pageantry things and they can do them fairly well but the I don't know there's there's something about this is I mean they're even wearing the same clothes that they were wearing 500 years ago yeah 
and everything. And that's not necessarily a good thing, mm. but it's it is certainly its own thing. Um, I suppose you know to quote the great George Michael, um, if you're going to do it, do it right. Um, yeah, there you go. And so you know, I, I like if you're going to do the pageantry. Yeah, like I better see some 500 year old clothes. That's kind of high thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean the one thing that really surprised me about the whole thing is, I mean, I, I is that people were surprised. Mm. Like, like I was. Yeah, you know, when we watched the Jubilee celebrations, mm-hmm. um, and that very touching thing where where Queen Elizabeth did a skit with or a sketch with Paddington himself, yeah. Paddington actual bear, and it's funny actually. Like the two most memorable things I I've, I've seen the Queen doing mm. are the her brief cameo in the twenty twelve. Olympics, Olympics, where she meets James Bond and then mm-hmm. parachutes out of a helicopter. Yes, because she really did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and when she had tea with Paddington, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, but then I, I just turned to my wife and said, okay, well, I don't think she's going to live out the year, mm-hmm. right? Because it's obviously she's very old, 96. Um, her husband, yeah, her husband has recently died after a 70 year marriage. Mm-hmm. And, now, I mean, she's got this massive celebration of the work that she has done. Mm. And it's like, this this is sort of when, you know, mm. it would just be very surprising to me if she'd lived to the end of the year. Yeah, so right. what, what was the point, unless she was really determined to make it to 100 or so? But, you know, right. I think that... You know, she's one, done her thing. You know, once yeah. uh, one loses their husband, you know, interest in such things, I think, usually take a nosedive, so... yeah. 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 Um, so, so I didn't understand where the surprise was coming from. Like mm. people were surprised when Prince Philip died at the age of ninety-nine. How can you be surprised <laughs> when a ninety-nine-year-old person dies? I know. It's like, I know. Yeah. It, that, you'd be surprised when they wake up in the morning. That's the sort of thing I found that I found that quite interesting because, um, you know, this is the thing about, uh, you know, these these really clever and deft turns, as I say, you know, yeah. in the propaganda, like, you know, doing these things that involve pop culture because pop culture has um, such um, incredible meaning and hook to us now, you know, like, whereas uh, previously, you know, monarchs might do things that were more involved with the church or something like that. You know, now Paddington, that's what passes, yeah. you know, for like a universal religion for us. So, you know, doing things <laughs> like this is is quite clever, you know, but, you know, this idea that that Elizabeth as an individual would continue on, you know, I, I had really, I was quite surprised she made it this, I was rather worried in the winter, last winter, yeah. I was sort of like, oh, this this is not looking good. You know, um, so, yeah. 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 I, I, I thought she'd make it to the 70th Jubilee just because oh, everyone was clearly making such a big thing about it. Mm, mm, um, mm. But I wouldn't have been surprised if she died the next day. But where yeah. is the surprise <laughs> coming from? Mm, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, because, you know, it's interesting because the institutions are individuals and individuals are aren't institutions you know it's kind of a queen's two bodies thing right so you know i suppose the thing is we're so used to the second interpretation of the body right you know the as in like kind of like the raised publica and you know the 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 way that the monarchy works as being this kind of overarching thing that dominates all of our lives we're all quite used to that and sort of forgot that she was also actually an individual at the same time as everyone was pretending they were that she was their nan 
Yeah. Which is quite interesting. So it's like, yeah, but is your nan alive? You know, kind of <laughs> deal. You know, which, which I'm, you know, I'm sure some people's are. You know, mine, mine are no longer with me, unfortunately. But uh, you know, if that's the way that we're thinking of it, then then it is entirely within the realm of the possible. You know, that she could be gone at any moment. And indeed, you know, I think that things swung into play so quickly and you know it was testament to how ready they they were on a personal level for this even if the public well, at large wasn't i mean that that plan must have been in place for 20 years at least oh god yes you know 96 um, come on like, <laughs> right and actually i'm not sure how true this is but um i read somewhere or saw somewhere that when princess diana died which was a massive surprise to everyone yes, and they had to yes. do a major funeral they took the plan from the queen mother's funeral and just adapted it slightly. Right, right, okay, yeah. Um, so, I mean, which makes sense, right? Mm, yeah, and it, it's, it's quite an interesting one because, I mean, I remember, so I was about, when Diana died, I was about 15. Um, right. I remember that, you know, even overseas and kind of, you know, and I also remember even overseas uh, watching kind of like the British tabloids pivot very suddenly from hating her and constantly hounding oh, yeah. her. To, oh, no, we always loved her. She was always great. And like even, you know, in the States, you could be like, come on, guys, you know, this is, this yeah. is getting ridiculous. Um, but I remember I, I very I very much remember all of that. But, you know, that was a genuine tragedy, you know. Whereas, yeah. you know, this is, this is simply, you know, this is actually as good as it could possibly get, really. Right. I mean, she's what, what 96 <laughs> and, and get this, she died in her favorite castle. Right. Because she had a choice of castles. Yeah, <laughs> And exactly. she died in her favorite one. It's like, this, this is, and you know, just a few days before she died, she was riding her horse. Yeah. You know, right? like, like we should all that's be a so charmed okay. life. Exactly. My yeah. God, you know, so and like, obviously, everyone is entitled to feel how they are going to feel. But, you know, you know, let a lady have a day off. Come on. She can't even, <laughs> you know, like, just die. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was slightly surprised hmm. that Charles seamlessly took over as king. Hmm. I was hoping he would abdicate in favor of his son. Yeah, yeah, I think everybody that was, was never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. That was that. Realistically, that was never going to happen. But there's something desperately wrong with the system. I think where a 73 year old man, right, finally gets a job he's been waiting to do for 50 years because his 96 year old mother dies. There's, it's like he should be retired. Yeah, yeah. Right? 73 is just in in absolutely ridiculous age to be starting anything other than I don't know a new hobby. Right. right. <laughs> which, which yeah. Well, maybe maybe take up writing books at seventy three. That's fine. But yeah. But suddenly you're supposed to act as the head of state at the age of seven. It just it just seems like an odd way of running things to me. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem particularly you know kind. I suppose that, um, that too it is one of the things that I think that people kind of forget again with ignoring people's humanity. It's just sort of like, Oh yeah. And March right. is 73 year old out into this like incredibly public facing job. And also by the way, he can't do all the things that he used to really care about, you know, like yes. get really involved in, you know, climate change activism and things like right. that. He can't express in the political opinion anymore. Yeah. Yeah. He always had to be careful about it, but now mm -hmm. he really mm -hmm. can't do it at all. Mm -hmm. um, and like, like that business with Harry basically mm. abdicating from the royal family, mm. which, okay, honestly, I think it's absolutely outrageous that somebody has to do, have a particular career just because of the family they were born into. Right, right. Great that it's an option, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, as a parent, 
of course, I'll be opening all the doors for my children that I can possibly yank open for them because that's course. what parents do. Yeah. Right. But, you know, I think it would just make more sense if maybe at the age of like 18 or 21 or something like that, they, they make a formal career decision. Like, mm, mm. okay, as a, I, I will do the royal thing or I will go and do something else. Yeah. Yeah. And be free to make that choice. And I've, I find it a really interesting one, too, you know, the kind of brouhaha about that, because it's like, well, let's be honest, you know, he was always, you know, in line after William, and now there's three other people in line between William and him. Well, like, who cares? You know, what is all of right. this for? And, I mean, I find it quite interesting, because, uh, you know, to, to steal a trick off of uh, my partner, Justin Hancock, what he says about, you know, the royals, and the thing that's quite interesting to think about um, from a sociological perspective, is the thing about them is that they have immense privilege... Um, and incredible amounts of power, but absolutely no agency. Right. And so it's really incredible because, you know, it, on the one hand, you know, yes, as we say, you know, the queen died in her favorite castle because she has a choice of castles, which are her favorite. You know, you, the levels of privilege that you and I could never possibly begin to understand. But at the same time, very little ability to actually express oneself, make any real decisions about right. one's life. You know, it, it's sort of all laid out before you. And, um, you know... Well, it's taken away from you. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, I mean, one of the reasons I believe that Harry quit the army is because it was... He couldn't be sent into places where the Taliban might capture him because yep. he was serving in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, because that would be too much of giving them too long a lever to work yep. on the British establishment with, right? Yep. Um, which is completely counter to proper medieval notions of monarchy where the king leads from the front. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, what's his name? The the Black Prince charges about oh, battlefields of, of France, you know, mm, mm. doing mayhem. I mean, that's, that's proper royal behavior, leading from yep. the front and being the first person to get shot. And, but it's interesting, too, because it just shows how different warfare is now, because it's sort of like, yeah. well, there is no leader of the Taliban, right? And so it, it would be that you send Prince Harry out there, you send one of the leaders of the Taliban out there, you attempt to, like, kill or kidnap one or the other, and then presto, that's how you solve the thing. Yeah. But, you know, now when we've come into modern warfare, and there is no one individual in other places, suddenly it's really interesting, because then the monarchy doesn't make quite the same amount of sense if it's doing the same thing, right? Because, you yeah. know, we're sort of the only ones who have, you know, a family that means this much, right? Yeah. Where, it, where it would really turn the tide of things if you manage to get hold of one or, or the other. Um, whereas, you know, other places it's just kind of like, you know, you've professional armies, you've this, you've that, you yeah. know, there, there is no one guy that you can get hold of to take down the Taliban, you know? Although, I, you know, I wonder what would happen if the Ukrainians could capture Putin. Yeah, that's true. That's that true. would be I, really interesting. And that's an interesting one, too, because, you know, the Russian idiom is so uh, incredibly different to our own because, you know, I think it, it's really rather clear that, you know, the way that it's kind of shaken out there is that, you know, probably the average individual Russian is not too happy with the, you know, the circumstances, but there's nothing they can do about it, right? Because right. it's kind of like a closed, a closed off thing. And, you know, I do believe that the other oligarchs, you know, who are now losing money hand over fist as a result yeah. of all of this, you know, if they could figure out a way to kind of knife this guy, I think they, they would. And I, I would imagine that it might actually be on the cards, but it 
yeah, there is there is one place where it's like, yeah, can we send Harry against him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, fantastic! There we should fun, have a showdown it? between Prince Harry and Vladimir Putin. I would, I, I'd watch. I think Harry would take him. I think, I think so. You know, I don't care how many uh, you know pictures you have of yourself riding a horse, uh, you know, without a shirt on. I think Harry's still got him in terms of you know <laughs> certainly reach at the very least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. All right. Okay. Now. Um, we should briefly mention your book, The yes. Middle Ages, A Graphic History, which I have. I mean, I would take it out and wave it, but no one can see what we're doing. Because so, um, uh, yeah. the last time we spoke, that was on the cards. Yeah, it was almost out and it wasn't out yet. Yeah. It was it was on its way. I think it came out about six months later, something like that. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. So what is it? What is it about? Why should we care? Okay, so what it is, is it's it's very cool because it comes out in, Icon has this series of books that are like graphic guides to whatever, you know, various concepts. Mm-hmm. A lot. It started out actually doing it on philosophy. Um, and I decided that I was going to do a history book because, you know, of who I am uh, generally as a person. So they're illustrated kind of in the sort of graphic novel style. But what the book purports to do is I set it up so that it mimics my first year survey medieval history courses. And it's kind of what I want people to remember about a year after having taken right. one, of, one of my courses. So, you know, because you know, it's, it's short, you're not going to get every single little in-depth thing. But um, what it tries to do is kind of cover the gamut of medieval history, you know, introduce the varying concepts that spring up over and over again, you know, things like monasticism or the growth of the church or uh, changes in the Holy Roman Empire, things like that. Um, right. And so it, and it kind of it takes adults through all that. Now, having said adults, you know, it's kind of aimed for people 14 and up, but uh, there are like references to sex and things like that. So because it is my book. So, what are you gonna do right it's like can't take her anywhere but uh, yeah so which i i think i saw a review somewhere where it's like this is not appropriate for 11 year olds and i was like no it's not i don't know who told oh, you that like honestly we have never censored sex stuff from kids because my view is that if you if you can have like a tv show where somebody stabs somebody else and they die mm, mm. if you can show that you That's ought really- to yeah. Like, like, okay. If you if you can if you can take an object and stick it into another person for the purpose of killing them, mm. you should be able to see taking something and sticking it into another person for the purposes of giving them a good time. Yeah, this is a, right? this is a really good point and something that drives me crazy is the the way that our society censors sex but not violence. Where it's like violence, right? Yes. Have at it. Vi- you know, yeah, vi- violence is fine. bad. Sex is good. Without yeah. violence, we'd all be better <laughs> off, and without well, within limits. Um, but without sex, we, we wouldn't, wouldn't exist. So yeah, so it's 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 quite a funny one. Uh, but yeah, it, that's the sort of thing that people get head up about. You know, meanwhile, you know, I am talking about Yanni Beg allegedly catapulting a dead corpse with bubonic plague over the walls of a city in order to infect right. everyone inside, and like that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Mm. Yeah, let everyone die with pustulant bubos all over yeah, them. Yeah, fine. In pain and misery, but for God's sake, don't show anybody getting off because that's wrong. <laughs> And it's not even like you, you see, it's not even like there's simulated sex or something. I'm just kind of like acknowledge the fact that sex exists, but you know, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We are definitely going to have a look at, at medieval sex stuff in a minute. But before mm. we go there, I do want to know, mm. okay, the problem with any of these survey things, yes. I, I'm trying to write a book on um, basically, this is 
this is what sword fighting is like. This uh-huh. is like like a kind of general survey of Oof. historical martial arts systems, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I keep basically foundering upon the rock of what do you leave out? Yes, it's so hard. It's so hard. Right? Uh, yeah. So what do you? How, how do you decide what you leave out of a survey like your Middle Ages graphic history? Well, I'll tell you one way it happened is somebody, mm. a.k.a. me, somewhere along the line while I was writing it, somehow convinced myself that I had about twice as many words per page. And so when I went to go kind of, I was like, all right, well, now it's written now to just edit it before I send it to my editor really quickly. And then I realized that I'd written twice uh, as much as I was supposed to. I had to start ah. killing my darlings really quickly. Um, and so what I... Did you not just make the book twice as big? I know, right? I was like, can I have two? And the answer is no. Uh, anyway, like, um, it, it, this was a difficult one. So I, I kind of chose themes. And right. I, I not, what I ended up doing was seeing how I could stick to those themes. So I chose, like, particular themes like, you know, the rise of Islam. Um, you know, uh, courtly love is in there. Um, you know, as I say, repeating things a lot of the time. So monasticism, so that, like, when a new mm-hmm. form of monasticism jumps up, you can do it. Um, I included all the renaissances. You know, yeah. uh, like Autonian, Carolingian, you know, 12th century, all just so that you could kind of see how that works. Um, but I had to be really careful about certain things. Like I basically could only do the first crusade. I was I didn't have enough room to yeah. do like every I kind of mentioned at times when they were happening. But I was like, well, we're just going to have to talk about this one because you, you don't have to. It would be an entire book about the Crusades if you just did the Crusades. Or you, know. you could do an entire book about each crusade. Yeah. Oh, people easily. have easily, easily. <laughs> and, you know. and this is the this is the problem. So, so basically what I'm getting from this is write the book twice as big and yeah. then cut it down. Yeah, probably don't do that though. No, no, actually, that was stupid. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. No, yeah. that that makes a lot of sense. See, I'm, I'm a woodworker, right? Yeah. So I'm used to you. You always you start with a tree, mm. and you and you're always taking wood away. You never add wood. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Occasionally you glue bits together, but fundamentally the only thing you could do to a piece of wood is make it smaller. Right. 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 So actually, it does make a kind of sense to yeah, me. Yeah. Grow so the tree. Grow the tree and then... Yeah, section it out. Yeah. And so I think that that is, you know, if you've got the time and you've got, you know, a lot of things that you don't... You don't want to get rid of right now. When they're in front of you and you know that you have to, that's sort of when... Okay, but then that's... That actually can be sort of farmed out. Now, see, you have a publisher who's mm. gave you a deadline and a word limit and that sort mm. of stuff. Mm. I do my own publishing, which means oh, I can luck, go as mate. long as I want. <laughs> right. No, no. So what I do is because constraints are necessary, mm. mm-hmm. um, I, I find ways of generating constraints. Right. And, you know, one, one way to do this particular thing would be to make the thing much too big and then send it out to some beta readers and get them to say, okay, you can chop out this bit, you can chop yep. out that bit, da, da, yep. da, and see what see how I feel about the suggestions that they're making. Yeah, I, so I did that with uh, my latest book, certainly, because I, uh, even I managed to go over in that, even though I knew what was going on. So, and again, I, I managed to uh, convince myself that it was 100,000 words, not 80,000 words, somewhere along the line. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Again, like I, I managed to do that, and then um, 
Yeah, like even then I wrote much more than that. And so I did send it out to, to sort of friends and things and say, what do you think can go? And, yeah. you know, that was that was good because, you know, I think that it is also a specifically kind of, you know, academic problem where you go, well, I have to get every single thing on the page or right. else someone's going to accuse me of not knowing that every yeah. single thing happened. And, you know, the average reader doesn't want to know about every single thing. It, it's kind of like more of a habit of kind of getting in front of other people, I, yeah. I think. Yeah. The one thing I've seen when, when friends of mine who are academics are writing books for the general public, mm-hmm. the one thing that they have to, they struggle with is being less defensive. It's like, yep. okay, you can have a sentence which is just declarative. Mm-hmm. In such and such, this happened like this. Boom. Yep. Right? Yep, yep, yep. It doesn't, you don't actually have to insert all the footnotes in parentheses in that sentence so that anyone reading it can't just disagree with it. Exactly. Right. It's okay if people read it and go, hmm, I don't agree with that, because that curiosity will often make them read on. Exactly. That's not actually even a bad thing. So, mm. yeah, getting rid of the defensiveness in the way in the way academics write is like step one in making a useful yeah. contribution to like the general field. Exactly. Yeah, because, you know, I think that it's one thing when we're writing for each other. You know, um, yeah. you know, when I write for the seven other people who work on Czech history, shout out, you know, like, <laughs> so I'm, uh, you know, kind of making sure that everyone sort of sees where the work has come from and things like sure. that. But it's often funny for me too, you know, as someone who oftentimes is working, you know, in the Czech idiom, um, with English people, you know, I've got plenty of footnotes, but no one can read them. Yeah, (laughs) I'm like, oh, there it is. They're in check. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, what are you gonna do? You know, so um, and one tries, and there is more and more out there, of course, as well. Um, so which is great, and you need to kind of keep that in mind. But it's it's funny because I'm being quite defensive about these things, but you know, at the same time, the majority of my colleagues are never going to go check on it because they're they just don't have the language, you know. Right. (laughs) They can't check on the check. That's right, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, a, it, it's not even, some of the things are just in German, but then, you know, and it, it's quite funny. I'll, I'll often laugh, you know, because I'll, the number of times I'm kind of like reviewing a book or something and it's about Germany and they will talk more about London than they do about Prague or something like that. And I'm like, it's, it's just next door, guys. The sources are in land. It's the, nope, you know, okay. All right. You know, and it, it'll be like, you know, something that's happening in Vienna or something. And it's like, and, you know, you could compare this to London. And I'm like, why would you? Why wouldn't you compare it to Prague, the imperial city? That's three days travel away. Why wouldn't you do that? And the answer is, I don't want to read Czech. And it's quite funny. So, um, yeah. And, and these language barriers are one of the biggest problems we have mm. doing any kind of academic work. I mean, the reason I oh, yeah. do Italian martial arts primarily Um um, is because I can read Italian. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, we all we all have that. You know, there there are certainly places where the gaps in my knowledge begin very very quickly because you know, for example, I've not got a single kind of Scandinavian language. So if you ask me about Vikings, I'm like, sure, bro, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it, it, granted, there's there is a pretty good historiography in English, and I've read plenty of that. You know, but um, I'm never going to be reading the sagas in the original. Let's put it that no. way. You know. Fair enough. Okay, so let us mm-hmm. talk about the once and future sex. Yay! That's my so, new book. <laughs> yes, the new book. Um, so, all right. All right. What is it about? Why should we care? Okay, so um, it's fun because it's a polemic. So uh, it okay. and I'm kind of writing about um, gender roles in medieval society and now. 
And the takeaway to understand from the book is that basically it is a historical argument for the fact that we're constantly changing the reasons why we explain that women are second-class citizens. But the Uh, only thing that ever remains the same is that women are second-class citizens. Okay, so for instance, um, like in the 19th century, only men should be in government because yeah. they are they are they are vigorous and passionate and they have the drive and in the 20th mm-hmm. century only men should be in government because um only men are properly in control of their feelings and they're cold and rational and, and women exactly. are too i forget and, which way around it goes but well women but, are women are too that's, yeah. <laughs> that's like well, you know and it, but no but you're you're exactly right so you know right. the, the point being that you can you can sit down and you can kind of plot through history the way that people talk about women um, yeah. And, you know, I, so I do a lot of kind of like talking about the ancient, like, you know, ancient Greek and Roman ideas about this um, and then kind of like going into the medieval and, you know, just showing rather conclusively, I feel that, you know, the reasons that women were said to be unfit to take part in society in the medieval period are like vastly different yeah. to the reasons that we use now. Um, and, you know, also a lot of our arguments for why we're kind of being jerks to women are incredibly new, right? For example, um, so I've got a chapter that's specifically about women and work in the medieval period. And mm-hmm. women worked at every single echelon of society the entire time during the medieval period. And there's this very modern idea that women are only now entering the workforce. Right. Which is hilarious, you know, because it's like they were there the whole time. There was this brief, brief period where the middle class specifically didn't work. Yes. And everybody else did. And and we're somehow saying that that's like all of human history and that quote unquote traditionally women would simply like be home in the house. And, you know, it's nonsense. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, just you just have to th- just think even briefly about well, who was making the cheese, who was yep. brewing the beer, yep. who was who was that, I mean, that, it was generally men running major companies. And yeah, but they always have women. But they, but they always, always have women helpmates, right? Know? Absolutely. Um, and it wasn't even always men running these bigger concerns because women sometimes own things in their own right. But there's all these property laws that get in the way. Yeah. In many times and places, women could not own property. Yeah, you basically have to. You can have property if you're married to a man and he dies. Exactly. Then you're allowed, right. like, so if you're a widow, you can right. do it. But um, it, that it's also all like a lot of the time only until, for example, your eldest son gains maturity or something like right. that, and then it automatically goes to to him. But it's quite interesting because it's instances like that that paint this picture of the idea that like women weren't then involved when that's not necessarily sure, true. It's just coverture. You know, women are working alongside men the entire time. You just don't talk about them. And, you know, not talking about them or them being, you know, for example, there's a, I, I give the example of one woman who's kind of working in the German lands and she's like changing coinage and she's really high up in her family's business. And, you know, she's, she keeps the books and she's like in charge of all the money things. And we don't know her name. We just know her husband's name. And they wow. just say like, they just say like his wife and you're like, yep. Okay. You know, and so it's it's certain things like this where you, but that doesn't mean that women weren't doing it. It just means that our records are skewed in this particularized way. Okay, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Right. So your book kind of makes the case that women have been discriminated against in these various ways for yep. millennia. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So the question is why? Uh, 
you know, this is this is a great. That's a great question. I think to a certain extent, we just like it. Um, and it, 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 we I, as in yeah. people, or we as in women. I think as uh, we as in people. I think it's a social okay. thing. So um, it it's comforting. I think. Uh, I mean, it's, it's comforting really, to whom? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one because the patriarchy hurts us all. Let's get that out in front, right? But there's this kind of patriarchal idea that the world must be ordered in this way. You know, thanks Aristotle, thanks Plato, uh, because you know women simply cannot. But also know, thanks to the Bible. Yeah, thanks to the Bible, certainly. So it's like you know the oldest the oldest things that we see, like you know the Platonian myths about uh, how the world is created, you know, or the ancient Greek ones. It's all that. Um, you know, men are the default and like a man is, is the normal human. Yeah. And then something else happens in order to get a woman. So for Plato, it's that um, first, the only people on earth were men. And that if you didn't do a great job being a man, when you died, you came back as a woman. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and yet, and yet the, just, just the very, a very cursory glance at um, how embryos develop. Tells us we, it's the other way around. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Um, but the default, know, the default human embryo is female. Is female. Yeah. And then yeah. you eventually, you eventually turn male if that's. Your if you're deal. exposed to the right chemicals. And exactly. Whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, but, you know, obviously the Bible story does this as well. You know, Adam's first. Yeah. Eve is kind of like an afterthought to make him happy. And I think that kind of what is happening here is that it's tied to, um, the forms of kind of agrarian ownership where there was kind of, you know, post the hunter gathering age when we don't necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, from, from what I know from historians who work on, you know, the prehistoric age, uh, we see less of this, like less of, you know, a desire to kind of like separate men and women, less of a desire to um, really differentiate uh, between the genders and say, these people do this, these people do that. Um, and it seems to have some connection to the ways in which we uh, bring together property and pass property down. Uh, okay. So it's kind of like to your benefit in theory, if what you want is a system in which your children and only your children underlined get the farm or whatever, right. you, it's, it's interesting and helpful to control women, apparently. So, I mean, you must have read Invisible Women by yes. Karen Carolla. Caroline yes. Carolla Perez, yeah. Yes, incredible, incredible book, yes. So. <laughs> yeah, it was that book which, which, which gave me the idea to start this podcast. Really? Yeah, totally. Mm. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Which is why we have uh, at least 51% female guests on this show. Fantastic, I love that. Because, you know, we've got to just yeah, sort of counterbalance. Right. You have to find some way to kind of counterbalance the, the general sort mm. of bias towards, okay, well, particularly with swords, right? Because swords, only mm. boys do swords because only boys have arms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it, and things like that, you know, it, it's, it's quite funny because this is, you know, as she would be the first to tell, you know, this is not something that you, you tend to see like in, in the prehistoric ref record. It's just, you know, people just were people in, and you know, that, that's kind of how it tends so, to be. Do you know Caroline? I don't. Um, I just, okay. I mean, I'm just a big fan of her work. That's all. all right. Yeah, I'm just, okay, I'm just a fan girl. Because if, if you did, I was I was gonna I was gonna cash an introduction out of you so I could try and get her on the show. But then, okay, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> I wish. No. Okay. Um, all right. So the, the the book then it's it's not actually about sex. 
Yeah. No, well, so here's the thing. So is there, is there any shagging in it? I mean, what has there, to last? There is. Yeah. So, so the, okay, way that it, uh, the way that it's the way that it's structured <laughs> is the the first chapter is about uh, kind of the ancient influences on medieval thinking and how medieval thinking comes to be. Okay. Uh, then there is a chapter on uh, beauty standards, okay. a chapter on sexuality, a mm -hmm. chapter on work, and then a chapter about uh, modernity and how we still are doing this. Okay. So Do you have a reference to Aristotle being ridden round the room by a dominatrix? I don't have the full ah! story in. I really should. I really should. I mean, I, I, which, because I'm like, I think I've got some BDSM stuff in there. I'm not sure, but I love but, that. Yeah, yeah. I really ought to have because. Um, I mean, you can find it in stained glass windows. Yeah, I know. It's so good, isn't it? Um, and it's, it's such an interesting kind of way of looking at sexuality from the medieval perspective, right? Because we're supposed to understand that women are the horny ones and that women are the ones who kind of like can't be trusted, right? But in the story- Because they're really, too horny all the time. Yeah, they're too horny all right. the time. So okay. you have to, you gotta like, you gotta keep an eye on them because who knows whom they might be shagging in yeah. that, right? But in this case, Phyllis isn't actually really interested in shagging Aristotle. She no. just doesn't like him. So she kind of like uses the sexual power over him to get him to want to shag her. And then he's kind of like brought low and brought to debase himself, which you, so what it does is it shows, you know, that, uh, you know, you can't trust women because they'll make you horny. And then they didn't even care about it. It's like, wait, are they horny or aren't they? Well, uh, yeah, because because basically if she's using Aristotle's raging horniness to basically get Aristotle to do whatever she wants. Yeah. Who is the person who is actually in control of their desires and who is the person who is completely, has completely lost control to their desire? Exactly, which is quite funny because it's modern in that sense as well. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that, that would be the sort of uh, story that I would expect to see now if someone, like, made up a story about, like, a, a woman and a man. It would be like, oh, yeah, the man was uncontrollably horny and the woman was doing it for some sense of gain. So yeah. it's quite interesting because it's kind of like a, an outlier um, to a certain respect, but what it does that I'm quite interested in and, you know, what I'm kind of like working on over in my, uh, academic life still is kind of like this idea though, that, that sex or sexuality is, is kind of like a thing that interferes with people. Right. So it's like when, uh, like sex is an object, which addles your mind and makes you go crazy. Right. Like it's an outside influence that, that ruins your life. And it does sort of show <laughs> that here, which is, you know, which uh, medieval people very much think, you know. They're yeah, like, sure. Okay. They're like, they're like, sex will burn your house down. And right. and like, but honestly, okay. honestly, but a lot of people think that today. Exactly. Uh, which I find very, very interesting. You know, like, so when you see, uh, for example, debates from... Uh, you know, the, the silly little incels or whatever, um, you, they will use these terms to talk about uh, sex that are um, completely objectifying, you know, where they, they will say that, you know, someone is owed sex or they will right. say that like um, women are uh, like women give all their sex to one man, you know, like they, they have all these silly ideas right. about how like all women are shagging one guy. Or something like that, and, and and the way that they tend to talk about sex is though it is it's somehow been misplaced, like it's a it's an asset which has been which has gone to the wrong place, and that they should actually be given it, you know. And then you see these arguments for, and I'm not joking. This is what they call it, sexual Marxism, where they essentially say that they should be like issued a girlfriend <laughs> so that they can have sex. I'm not even making that up. 
It, I wish I was. <gasps> ah, ah, yeah. I don't know why I'm laughing because that is horrific. Yeah, right. Because that's basically slavery. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, because, because, well, women can't be trusted. You see, women can't be trusted to, um, to hand out sex in the correct way, right? So, like, to me, to me, to me, to me, which is to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like yes. so, so someone needs to step in and do something about this and you're just like what like is, what how um, yeah sure brah you know it's it's all very it's a lot but, but the thing is though there are plenty of if, if you want to treat sex as a commodity there are plenty of people who will sell you some oh yeah yeah but then so they why get that, don't they that just do well. that yeah no that neither why? that no because the issue there then is that women now suddenly have too much of an idea about what their sexes work. So it, it, it's supposed to be, you know, there, there's always this idealized woman, okay, the idealized woman who has never kind of like existed in the entire world, but she should, right? Which is that um, she has never had sex with another man, so she's nothing to compare it to. Yeah. She's not interested in having sex with anyone for any reason except the man who she will be assigned to, like okay. rightly and correctly. Um, and then the trouble with sex workers is that sex workers are out of the control of men, right? So they are... They well, are, ideally they are, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, within these circumstances, they, they're aware of kind of like what they have as an asset. And they're like, well, that's going to be this much, right? Whereas what they should do is be under the control of a man within the, the confines of a relationship. So it needs to be kind of like a private monogamous relationship. And okay. then, that like, you, you can't ever let women know what sex is quote-unquote worth. Well, at least at least they're not in favor of sex trafficking. Yeah, that's one thing. Yeah. That's one. That's one. Actually, we got one thing that they, they're doing right. <laughs> so you know, even broken clocks, right? Right. Um, okay. Yeah. This. <laughs> yeah. This sorry, is... that was depressing. There you no, go. No. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Okay. You're a fan of Th White, yes? Yes, I am. Yes. Yes. Okay. Because the once and future sex, you've borrowed that from the once and future king. I Am have, I correct? Yes. Excellent. Yes, you, are, you are. Okay. Yes. You know, I nicked my first book title off a book I liked. I oh, took, yeah? Yeah. My first book's called The Swordsman's Companion. Yeah. And it is a reference to Donald McBain's book from 1728 called The Sword Man's Companion. Oh. Yeah. That's nice. That's really nice. Yeah. I've, so, I, yeah. I, I, I just Stealing really book liked, titles is good. I just really liked The Once and Future King when I had to read it in high school, <laughs> which, you know, is probably how I ended up here. Right. And so I thought that was quite fun. <laughs> Yeah. Although it's not even really slightly historical. No, not at all. But um, I thought that it, what it did was I thought that with a title like that, it kind of broadcasts the medievalism of it, right? I thought yeah. that like a non-expert audience would go, oh, this is probably medieval, right? Yeah. And it also kind of like captures what I'm kind of trying to say in the book, which is like, right, if so, if you know, our weird sexist attitudes are just something that we're constantly doing and constantly updating. We could just stop, right? Like, you could, okay. <laughs> we could just stop at any time. It doesn't have to be like this. This is a choice that we're continuously making and we're continuously sort of making the, changing the maths so that we get the answer that we want. Um, but eventually we could stop and it could become something different. And so what I wanted to kind of also broadcast is there's this this idealized kind of like future in which you know, this can be, we can talk about women, uh, but outside of these same kind of parameters, right? So how would you like women to be talked about? Um, just like people, 
I suppose. You know, I, it's a really quite interesting one, right? So it's like being raised in the way that I was, right? Um, How were you raised? Yeah, I was raised by uh, you know two hippies who are excellent, and um, you know, okay. and and you know by a a dad who's a huge fan of martial arts and like a mom who was like the primary breadwinner, and I had like a you know a, my father's a carpenter, but when there were four of us, you know, like someone had yeah. to stay home for a while, and and it was dad. Um, and, you know, like we all did a martial art and we all like running, jumping, climbing trees, climbing, you know, mm -hmm. th th things of this nature. Right. Um, and there was kind of like a real premium in my household on kind of like coming coming together at, to kind of like a level where everyone was doing sort of the same thing. You know, and obviously there's there's problems within that as well. And I think that there's, you, you know, there's a big feminist de debate to be had about like, well, is it really necessarily uh, useful to have women doing all the same things that men are doing? Like, is, is that parody or is it kind of like mixing things up a little bit more? Well, and I suppose sure. that what I'm aiming for here is kind of like a jumble. I just want to complicate things. I don't okay. think that it should be men are like this, women are like this. I think that there should be kind of like a grab bag in which you can kind of like reach in and pull out what it is that you want, you know, like a, a kind yeah. of spe spectrum of things and, and, you know, general things all over the place that we could kind of like choose what our level is at, you know. Um, so, and I think that we're getting there, you know, I think that, for example, our ideas of fatherhood have really changed over my lifetime. Yeah. And we're seeing much more... Um, Get this. A lot, a lot more dads like mine now. But my, my, my dad was is a very good dad in all sorts of respects and mm. organized the best birthday parties ever, mm. mm -hmm. right? But he's never changed a nappy in his life. See, that's right? interesting. Yeah, I, I have personally, I, I once calculated when I think when my youngest was about two that I have probably changed somewhere around seven thousand nappies. Yeah, right. I'm yeah. pretty good at that sort of thing these yeah. days. Yeah. Right? Since, since becoming a parent. Yeah. Now, I didn't change one until I became a parent. I've never, you know, I, yeah. I've, never yeah. I've probably changed nappies on the little children who were having sleepovers while their parents went out and had a night out or something. Yeah. I don't actually recall any specifics, but it's like, you know, why would you not, as, you know, as a, as a father, why would you not be a mm. completely competent caregiver to your child? Mm. I mean, the only thing I couldn't do is lactate, but we have yeah. technical solutions for that. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's quite interesting to me because I find it sort of like infantilizing, right. right? You know, on everyone's part, it was like, oh, well, men wouldn't be capable of this. Like, what are you talking about? Of course they are. Right. Yeah, you know, and it, always it, happy. Yeah. And it's, it's a very, very strange thing to kind of try to demarcate and, and kind of move around. And so, yeah, I suppose that I, I just think that we should have more of like a mix where everything is kind of like in a bag and you kind of like take out what it is, you know, and, and, and what it isn't generally. And, Unfortunately, a lot of the time, the way that gender works and when one works on gender, as I do, you know, we tend to act still as though women are the only one with a gender. And we're like, granted, right. I've just added to this discourse by writing a whole book about women. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, but, you know, when we begin to deconstruct ideas about, you know, there being a basic femininity, then you mm -hmm. can also do that with masculinity and say, well, actually, who's, who's this serving? It isn't really great for anybody, is it? You know? Right. I mean, like, all of that sort of, sort of personal care of the little babies mm. where you're doing all the things the baby needs, that's when the baby learns to trust you completely. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm. Um, although there was this one time, uh, well, my eldest was about six months old, something like that. She just decided daddy wasn't necessary and she only really wanted to 
her mother. Right. Um, and that's fine. You know, babies are entitled to make these choices. Yeah. And then when my wife was pregnant with our second child, my, my sister had her child. I went over to London to see the baby, see my nephew. Mm, mm. And I took my eldest with me. She was my only child at that point. She was about yep. 15 months old. Hadn't, hadn't quite got the walking thing down yet. Yeah. Um, and I was going around London in a, in a, in a push chair for about, with a push chair for about five days. I'll tell you something, by the way. Mm. Um, a chap pushing a push chair, mm-hmm. absolute babe magnet. Ah, oh, I, I mean, bet. yeah. So many attractive young women started talking to me. Uh-huh, it was extra- uh-huh. it was extraordinary, right? Because um, they're like, "Hey, comrades, amazing!" Yeah, <laughs> or, or like, or like, a fertile bee sticks around to look after them. There's some yeah, kind of genetic that. programming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so after I'd been the only parent around for about five days, and we went back again um, at home again. After that, she was like, "Okay, either parent will do." Ah, I see. Right? And yeah. the thing is, if I wasn't capable of doing all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I couldn't have taken her with me and we couldn't have had that time together just the two of us exactly. and who knows where that where that relationship where that relationship exactly yeah yeah, that's quite interesting yeah I, I mean I think that that is this is why it's so useful and interesting to kind of talk about these things because surely you know people want to have better relationships and, and more fulfilling relationships with their children. You know, surely, you know, we want to open ourselves up to kind of like a rich world wherein, you know, our friendships are diverse and, you know, our families are, are interconnected in all these kind of interesting ways, you know, and unfortunately we have a lot of kind of historical baggage to unpick before we get to that level. But I think that most of us could agree that that's useful and helpful, you know. Oh, other than these like terrible yeah. kind of like trads who we're getting now, who are kind of all pretend they're all going to go <laughs> live on a farm and I don't know, whatever, it's, it, which is just nuts to me. But, you know, so you don't okay. want to live on a farm. You want to grow like five plants. And, yes. you know, like yes. I assure you, you don't want to be milking cows on Christmas morning. Come on. Come on. Do you know why I, my dad's a vet? And do you know why I am not a vet? Hmm. Because Christmas Day... It must have been about 1982 or three. We mm-hmm. recently moved to Botswana. My great aunt lived on a dairy farm outside Durban, up in the hills in South Africa. Uh-huh. And we'd gone yep. to spend Christmas at my great aunt's on this dairy farm. And my dad's a veterinary surgeon, right? So yep. on Christmas morning at about five o'clock, a cow goes into labor in a ditch. Uh-huh. And it's freezing bloody cold because it's winter and we're up in the mountains. And so mm-hmm. I go out on the back of the truck because you know, I'm a young kid and I. You know, I was awake and whatnot. And I was like, oh, yeah. that cow's been birthed. You want to come? Yeah, of course I will. So we go out and there I've sat on the back of a truck with some of the farm hands and my dad stripped to the waist with his arm Just up to the, the shoulder mm-hmm. up the back end of a cow on Christmas yeah. Day. And I was like, that's not the job for me. Probably not for me. Probably not the one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I like. I, mean, I got over that one early as a kid just because I realized, you know, that when you're a vet, sometimes the animals are in pain. It's not like you bring them yeah. in and they're just like fluffy and you give them a little pat. And I will just, you know, be reduced to tears the moment I saw and, a single dog some, having a bad time. Yeah, sometimes there's nothing you can do and you have to put them down. I right? couldn't do it. I couldn't do no. it. No, nah, no. Mm-mm. Like, I mean, uh, God bless vets. Great bunch of people. Not for me. I'm too much yeah. of this. Uh, okay. Now... I know we have a sort of time limit, so 
we have to mention the TV because the last time I saw you, you, ah. hadn't, you weren't doing TV yet, and, yet, and now yet. you are like all over the screens. <laughs> I know, I know. It's been a funny, like okay. it's been it's been a weird lockdown, you know. Okay, so say? so you have a TV show on the medieval afterlife and mm-hmm. one called Going Medieval. Yeah. Um, and that's what, the, the, how did they come about, and what are they? So um, they it's all like it's all thanks to Dan Snow. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so, uh, basically when I was kind of, you know, doing the rounds of all the podcasts and, and this sort mm-hmm. of thing, um, in lockdown, um, I went on Dan's as well. And then from there, they kind of said to me, well, what would you think about, uh, kind of making a television show? And I was like, yes, I love being paid. I've always been passionate about being paid for my work. Uh, and, uh, so the first one that I did was on medieval London and it's very cute yeah. because it's like the depths of lockdown and it's kind of like, here are some things that I know that we can get to that like are sort of outside where we can move around right so yeah. kind of did that one um that did really well and people were really interested in it so they said hey how would you like to do something else so um that's when i started going medieval so the first series on that is um on kind of the organization of medieval society more generally so there's an episode about um uh the peasants episode mm-hmm. about the church episode about uh kind of royals and nobles and an episode about uh like merchants and guilds mm-hmm. uh, so just kind of like how you know generalized fabric of medieval society and then from there the next series was about pleasure in the medieval period so there's one about sex one about booze and one about sport in the medieval okay. period and then um i just got it in my head and i was like can i make a show about ghosts because uh <laughs> I just wanted to because I just okay. I, I've been doing a lot of work on uh, the afterlife and ghosts recently, and I thought it'd be quite interesting. How so? Um, well, so I've been because I do a lot of work on apocalypticism that kind of like lends itself to images of hell and things like that, yeah. and then I started kind of getting interested retrospectively in ideas about death and spirits and what happens there because there's lots of medieval ghost stories which sometimes yeah. surprises people because you know in a christian universe where where, where do the ghosts where, fit? where do the ghosts come from yeah um, and it, that's quite interesting because of the like a lot of the time they're kind of projections who sort of are simultaneously in purgatory and on earth is yeah. the answer so they're, they're kind of it's a sort of a two for one Right. Yeah. And then I, I thought that all of this was quite interesting and something that people don't really talk about because, um, you know, quite rightly, we often associate kind of ghosts with Victoriana because yeah. Victorians were so obsessed with them. And I thought it'd be quite interesting to kind of uh, pick out the differences between there. And it turns out people have liked that as well. So lucky me, which is great. Um, so I got to kind of gallivant around the country and stay in a haunted castle and things of this nature. You know? <laughs> okay. So do you actually believe in ghosts? Um, I'm kind of like what I say, ghost agnostic. So the way, the way that I kind of feel about it is that, um, literally we have ghost stories that like date to Babylonia, you know, Mesopotamians Mm -hmm. were like, all right, I've I've figured out how to write guys. Here's a story about a ghost. Right. And I feel as though there's something kind of in the human psyche that, that brings up this experience at the very least this is a human experience that is real that keeps happening and i think there's something to that um and i kind of look at it in the sort of like way that i don't know medieval people think about magic right when Mm -hmm. they're sort of like oh this magnet can attract metal it's magic i'm kind of like uh kind of like weird unexplained ghosts you know quote unquote and maybe it's something that we'll figure out how to explain later or not um but on the other hand, I don't believe everything. So I'm kind of like, eh. I'm like, eh, about it. Like, I had to talk to a very nice man who was like the ghost hunter at the castle and baby. 
dowsing rods. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, if if these things really work, someone would have won James Randi's prize. Yeah, exactly. That that's sort of my thing about it. So I'm kind of like, mm. you know, like so w- within reason. And I suppose I just find it quite interesting. You know, I I, I suppose I just like horror movies, and I think that's okay. You know, yeah, to, why not? To, you know, yeah. But um, I'm not like it's not going to hurt my feelings. You know, if someone is all like, oh, I don't believe in ghosts, I'm like, sure, no, I could totally see that. You know, like I, I I'm kind of like, you know, one foot in each camp, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so. Uh, where do people find these TV shows? Okay, so these are all on History Hit uh, television. So it's all online. So you can watch it anywhere you want. And I believe if you sign up, you can get, like, the first month free. So that's that's cool. So, you know. Okay. Um, you can, so, you, so it's its own sort of, it's it's its own sort of media it's, empire. It's its own media empire. So the thing is, they are attempting to kind of be sort of like Netflix, but just for history shows. Ah, okay. So, but I don't know. I'm filming something coming up this week uh, about the Black Death for Channel Four, uh, okay. things like that. So you know, there, there's going to be more and more coming out. But yeah. Well, yeah. if they ever need somebody to do the sword stuff, you let me I know. I will. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I should pitch something about swords, but you know. You should. Yeah. Then, I should. Then, then, yeah. Joe, Joe, would be really kind of fun, right? Mm-hmm. Is I, I know you, you don't practice any kind of swordsmanship, right? I've got, I'm very, very bad with a scholar's sword in the Wing Chun tradition, but you know. Okay, <laughs> fine. All right. So, so we should, we should do some historical swordsmanship together. Ah. And I'll teach you how we get the movement out of the books. Oh, I would love that. That'd be fun. That, I think that would, that would sort of hit the sweet spot of history and research, but actual also moving stuff around. Oh, yeah, things. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's the thing is you always have to have the doing thing angle. Right? Yeah. Ooh. No, just no a this thought. is good. Yeah, I'm going to have a think about this. I love this. Okay, <laughs> great, great. Okay, so, all right. Um, last time I asked you about the best idea you haven't acted on, mm. you were thinking about a guide to medieval art history, teaching people how to read art in the medieval period. Yeah. Okay. Which I think is a bloody good idea. And I was, I sort of got it, I got it conflated in my head with the graphic history of the Middle Ages because mm, graphic mm. and art and pictures and stuff, right? Because I'm yeah. not very bright. What can I say? Um, so any progress on... So we tried. So I've got a this. co-author for this, uh, the the charming Dr. Uh, Sarah Oberg-Stradal, uh, who is an art historian. And we were like, we pitched this. We were like, hey, here's, here's what's up. And uh, the publishers were like, we don't really know how we'll get around copyright and stuff with this and we were like oh it's easy which i think and we were like it's literally easy these things are like hundreds and hundreds of years old and you just have to draw a version but you know they didn't believe us or Um, or you go to the gallery and you take a photograph and you you have copyright of that photograph exactly it's it's i don't think that publishers quite understand (laughs) okay but you know god bless them god bless them um but so we are kind of trying to think about maybe doing something like that as a zine now. Um, although we've now got sidetracked into uh, writing a book about the Renaissance, which is sort of like on pause currently because we're both too busy, but we're getting into it again next year. Which um, Renaissance? Uh, the quote unquote, the, the one that started on yeah. Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. in 1405, was it? Yeah, when, when, when a guy went up a mountain. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, so it's basically about how that's not real and calm down is, is sort of like the... That's a difficult book to pitch. Because, yeah, the, because a book would, that tells you that's not real, calm down, yeah. is, 
that's a that's a hard sell. Yeah, we were we were the the uh, title we pitched was everything you know about the Renaissance is wrong. Uh, that's better. And they, we were told we can't have that title, so it's kind of just like a Renaissance book question mark at the moment. Okay, so, yeah. so you seem to have a lot of problem with publishers. So my yeah, obvious yeah. question is, why don't you publish your own books? Yeah, I know. Well, this is the thing. So we're, it's we're piss kind of easy. Like, yeah, we were kind of like we should just publish our own kind of version of this. So that's 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 sort of like the the next thing. The answer is, yeah, we got shot down, and now we're kind of like working around to it again. We're kind of sidling up to it from another side at this juncture. Yeah, but okay. I want to. Yeah. Because I think that people really want want it. You know, every time I kind of like explain, you know, art, uh, you know, art tropes and things like that, everyone is dead interested. But it's sort of like, right? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have um, above the monitor, above my desk, I have good government from Lorenzetti's Allegory of Good and Bad Government. Oh. Um, I actually have the rest of it, but they. They don't have all of because because a lot of that the fresco was lost on the mm-hmm. on the the effects of bad government. Right. Um, yeah. But I've I've got it. I've got all of the posters that they produce. Oh, that's um, so cool for this. But I couldn't fit them all, and I thought, okay, if I had to fit just one, it should probably be the good government allegory, and I should stick yeah. it right where I have to see it. <laughs> <laughs> to remind me to behave myself. <laughs> That's very good. Yes, um, but there is there are so many stories built into that one part mm-hmm. of that one picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's there's books and books and books in just that one painting. Yeah. So and, and this is so thing. some kind of guide as to how to read medieval yeah, art exactly. would be really helpful. Yeah, Pretty medieval art. Renaissance art's a bit more straightforward, I think. Yeah, but. Renaissance art is a little easier to understand. I think that it's it's the esotericness of um, you know medieval art that makes it so fun and interesting. You know, and it's why people want want to you know know more about it. So yeah, actually, this is a really good point. We should just do it ourselves, frankly. Yes. Why know? wait for the gatekeepers to mm. open the gate? Why not just do it yourself? Yeah, for real. Yeah. I think so it's you with, got all me your, there. with all your TV shows and stuff, you can you have a way of getting people to know about it. Mm, that's true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because the hard part is not the publishing. The hard part is the marketing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the hardest part is the writing in the first place. <laughs> Producing yeah. it. Oh, God, I know. It's the like, challenge. Oh, God, it's ridiculous now that, like, with my new book, because it's out on, like, a big press. So there's mm-hmm. there's all the stuff to do now, which is great, you know, because they're, they're marketing it, which is amazing. I've never experienced this before. But it's sort of like the prize for writing a book is you get to write more, where they're like, and now you can write some essays. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no more essays i'm just i'm so tired you know and so it's 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 very funny to me that it's like right and then you get to write some more yeah great like yeah yeah so so maybe i've just just planted a little seed of maybe you should publish it or something. yeah you have actually yeah. so that, that, that you're to blame and honestly you know? you'll make more money yeah i know well that's the thing isn't so it? much more money yeah 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 because lord knows you don't off of presses let's no. be real yeah. No, I mean, yeah. unless unless you're you know, Stephen King, he does okay. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> Lee, Lee Child also, but but basically there's this. Oh. It's okay. You, you see it a lot in throughout history. There are these these periods of sort of democratization of things, but then we go yeah. into periods where um, you have this massive disparity between the many who are paid nothing and the few who are paid much. Yeah. Yeah, right? and that's where and we are. <laughs> that's where we are with books at the moment. It used to be that pretty much all authors who were publishing with major publishing houses had a living wage and 
Some of them did really well. Most yeah. of them, most of them, you know, could afford a reasonable middle class income, and that was that. But yeah. then, but then it's gradually gotten to the point where, you know, Patricia Cornwell and Lee Child and Stephen King, people like that, yeah. are making absolute metric fuck tons of money. Like, there's this brilliant story with Terry Pratchett where he knew he had become really properly rich mm. when he realized he had lost a check from his publisher for royalties. And mm. so he phoned them up to ask them to send him a, another one, you know, a yep, replacement yeah, yeah, yeah. check. And that check was for half a million quid. Jesus Christ. Right? Imagine losing, <laughs> losing like, a check. He literally lost a check for half a million quid. Uh, <laughs> because, because he didn't, you know, you know, you or me, got a check for half a million quid that's it we we hold it like this and we yeah, run like, to the bank and we exactly. put it in the bank and then we like start buying cool shit <laughs> immediately immediately right it's just oh god yeah yeah um but yeah okay so so the best idea you haven't acted on yet is still it's still a thing because medieval I'm art history yeah so i guess now that now you can say the best idea that i haven't acted on yet is like just doing it myself Okay. See, so that that'll All be right. the next one. So and and it's been it's been nearly two years. Look, I wrote another book. <laughs> Gee, come on, give a girl a break, right? Like... Uh, okay. All right. I'm not sorry at all. Um, all right. All right. So, my last question. Yeah. Is somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving? Okay, normally it's improving historical martial arts worldwide, but for you it's improving the understanding of history worldwide. Mm. Um, so other than shorts with stuff printed on the back, which I hear are very <laughs> successful. That's very successful, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned free adult learning classes, the teachers being paid, but people could go and get yeah. free yeah, classes yeah, yeah. last time. And you also mentioned digitizing manuscripts. Yeah. Um, how would you spend it? Okay, so... Uh, you know, those are those are good answers past me. Well done. They were. They were uh, good but answers. a thing that I think that I would also do is I would kind of set up a fund for training teachers, especially kind of like in high school, mm -hmm. to teach medieval stuff. So um, I did a great talk uh, the other night for um, a fantastic group uh, here in the UK called Be Bold History, which is um, a group of uh, high school, middle, uh, the, the kind of like uh, teaching history and kind of like saying to them, here's some ways that you can kind of integrate uh, medieval history into your class. Here's some ideas, here's some resources, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that one of the things that is really a problem is that according to some surveys that were just out, I suppose, in 2018, um, something like 80% of high school history teachers said that they've never had any medieval history. Right. right. So it's like, how are they how are they going to integrate things into a curricula that doesn't privilege it? And so it's sort of like, I think, kind of getting the training to teachers is also good. the problem is the curriculum as set by the government. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. OK, get this. And then my my younger daughter knows that there were many, many uh, Chinese soldiers who fought for the British in the First World War. Yep. Right. But she didn't know who Lenin was. How interesting. And I was like, really? And, and this came up because we were watching The Crown and mm -hmm. there's this bit where in, in season one, I think, where this African leader has a picture of the Queen because it's a Commonwealth yep. country and they take down the picture of the Queen and they hang a picture of Lenin. And of yep. course, I recognize it immediately, but he's not named in the thing. And she was like, who's that? And I was like, that's Lenin. She said, well, who's Lenin? 
Oh. Oh. Right? It's like, it does seem that if you're studying the history of, shall we say, the second decade of the 20th century, it's odd to know yeah. that there were Chinese soldiers fighting for the British in the First World War, but you don't know who Lenin is. That does seem like an... Yeah, that does seem odd. Yeah, so I, I think that probably we're going to need some money to specifically do lobbying at whoever sets the curricula. I think, you know? yeah, that, that yeah. may be the place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or, or maybe get actual historians to set the curricula. Yeah, because, you know, it's wild. Like, um, medieval historians are always talking about this. If you ever look at the Life in Britain exam, all of the medieval history questions are basically wrong. Oh, totally. Like, yes. completely wrong. And <laughs> okay, I, I would fail the modern British citizenship test. I would fail it outright. Yeah, and mostly because you'd be right about things that are there definitively asking you to be wrong you know about yeah it. and it's just like you have to learn the wrong answer to get the right answer it's it's just ridiculous yeah it's, yeah it's a it's a it's a very sort of strange and arbitrary hoop to get people to jump through mm, mm. to let them live. it's 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 not making anyone happy either so you know no. but okay really you 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 have like an external view of, of britain you know mm. being an immigrant to this country mm. um and what what do you think Britishness is? God, that's a huge question, I suppose. And I, I, I constantly wonder about this as well, because I think that, you know, I'm like rather a Londoner and that's sort of like one thing and it's not yeah. all the things. But I suppose Britishness, I mean, one of the things that we kind of have that other people don't have is we do have this sort of like, imperial nostalgia malaise thing that other people can, don't Can have. I just point out you said we? Yeah. I mean, so I do, do think have, of it. Do you yeah, think of yourself as British? Yeah. I mean, no, I've okay. been here. So this is the longest I've lived uh, anywhere in my adult life, you know, so I'm, I'm 15 years now in London. So, um, okay. I lived in Finland for 15 years and I did not understand how Finnish I had become until I left. See? Yeah. That's the thing. So many things. Okay. Okay. I have a really serious question for you. Yeah. Uh -huh. I don't know. Okay, taps. Should you have two separate taps in a sink, the hot tap and the cold tap, or should you have a mixer tap in the middle? Okay, so I'm not British because, oh my God, you should have a mixer tap. Why is there a hot tap and a cold okay, tap? You're just going to scald yourself. I You're remember, just going to scald yourself. But I remember, I remember 20 odd years ago, vigorously arguing in favor of the two separate taps as inherently superior because, because I don't know, I can't justify it. I, can't, I don't know what I was thinking, except, uh, it, except... Yeah. They were somehow, there was something culturally right about it. And yeah. that's what I was probably trying to articulate. And this notion of a practical tap that actually just works and gives you as much water of the temperature you want when you want it. It's just somehow, it's just not the done thing. Yeah, see, it's, it, in my house, I've only mixer taps, you know, and I've, I've seen to that, you know. Yes. Uh, but, um, as you should. Uh, over at my partner's, he's got, because he lives um, in the Barbican and he's got like the original Barbican sink in his in his oh bathroom God, and, it, yeah. and it's one of the sexiest objects ever known to man it is like an absolutely gorgeous piece of porcelain and it's got kind of these like raised bumps that look sort of like the top of a lego or something for you mm -hmm. to put soap on on either side and it's got a hot and cold tap and that the blood and the hot water is so hot as yeah. to be scalding and it's just sort of like so you can't get rid of there's no way like i mean well even but if you to, own the place, and to wash you your hands it. yeah to wash your hands in bearable temperature water you have to put the plug in and yeah. then mix it together and that yeah. takes a while whereas yeah. you can wash your hands in maybe a tenth of the time yeah. if you can just turn the tap on 
it's just it's yeah. incredible so you know it, it's one of these things where you know not that we own the place you know it's rented but even if we could we wouldn't pull the thing out because it's too beautiful right but you're but it's so impractical and it, it drives me insane. but there is some so there is some kind of like britishness of, of the sort of the stick to and the kind mm-hmm. of like um and one of the things that's really kind of british is a that's the way we've always done things yeah. that's within there and be also this kind of like um glorifying in things not being very good be like well no you know what what is it you know the don't like it there's the door like hot and cold taps oh you don't like it like what you know like this idea that things kind of should be a little bit like, impractical and inconvenient <laughs> like, like, like i i do know people who who don't mind that their home is freezing fucking cold in winter because you can just put a sweater on it's a, like, I just, uh, bah, 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 yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's kind of a, things like this, or it's you know, it's a weird one for me. Like as you know, like I'm a mutt, and you know, the product of like really recent immigration, and then an immigrant myself. So I'm like carrying around like all of these things, right? So it's like I've got these like very check things where it's like I can't bear to see shoes worn in a house and you can't sit on beds in your outside clothes and you know I've got like all these like I've oh, got wow. all these fuss, fussy check things right? that's I've more got... extreme than in, in Finland you absolutely take your shoes off when you come in and yeah. I've been doing that pretty much since I moved to Finland and anything else is honestly it's a bit barbaric yeah it freaks um, me out yeah yeah uh, but yeah they're, they're not sitting on the bed in outside clothes yeah because like your outside clothes are gross and you were out Uh, you know if you were outside and you came into contact with question mark it shouldn't be right yeah and and i realize that this is a me thing and that's fine you know i kind of like don't expect it of others you know it doesn't really come up Mm -hmm. very often in my day-to-day life but it's something that i believe strongly and so i've got you know i've got things like this um but you know there and there are certain british things that i definitely have like i will get in an argument immediately if someone says that british food is bad Right. I will begin to wrestle them. I'm like, sorry, but but Yorkshire pudding and Yorkshire. toad in the hole and pork God's pies. Oh my God! Yes, God's own food. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like this is this is incredible stuff. It's very okay. very good, you know. And and certain things about me, like you know, I'm more British than British people in certain cases. For example, because like I will holiday in Britain. You know, right. because for, for me, it's quite interesting to go to the Yorkshire Dells or some somewhere sure. like that, Why not? you know, and, and I'm very, very interested in those things. And it's like, you know, and I want a pint of bitter and mm-hmm. I want, you know, a sausage roll and I want, you know, and I want, there are and these things that I want. Or beer, I does not have to, beer does not have to be served cold. No, no. Beer, you can't it taste it if it's cold. Exactly. And, you know... So I've got all of these things, right? So there, it's it's an interesting one because at this point in time, who knows what it is that's going on with me? But I will certainly kind of like instinctively say we now all the mm-hmm. time when when I'm talking about what's going on here. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm certainly a part of it. But you know, every time I go back to Seattle you know i it's like i'm more and more foreign and like i'm more and more yeah. english about things like I, I i went to the coast with my sister when i was home this spring for the first time in ages um and here i was in like my little london clothes like i had like my mac right mm-hmm. like i'm on the oregon coast in like my mac and like with my and, and it just like i didn't look like any i wasn't dressed like anyone else there because they were all in kind of standard issue northwestern clothes like a sort of you know fleece vest and you know things yeah. of this nature 
I was going to the coffee shop um, in the morning to, to to get like a big large uh, coffee, and there was this more one morning I went in and there was a British woman who'd like clearly been in the Northwest for quite some time, older than me, and was like dressed head to toe like a Northwesterner. But she like took one look at me and like my handbag and my mat going in and like gave me a nod. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, yeah, there you go. See, that's what's up, you know? So it's kind of like, so British people abroad, if I don't speak, are like, ah, I have encountered a fellow British person, right? Because of the way that I present myself, I suppose. Yeah. But here's Uh, a really weird thing. When I moved here from Finland, I mean, I am technically British. I was born in Cambridge. I'm, you know, I'm English, right? Yeah. Um, But I absorbed so much... Finnishness from living in Finland and mm-hmm. quite a bit of Italian from immersing myself in Italian sources yep. a lot. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. But when I moved here, I had, and I, I've lived as an as a immigrant most of my life because, you know, as mm. a foreigner, uh, well, growing up in um, Botswana and Peru and places like that yep. because of my dad's work and then um, living in Finland, right? I'm used to being a foreigner and that's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But when, for example, you're British in Finland, the Finns assume that you don't know how things work. And, yeah. But coming here, everyone assumes that I know how things work. And honestly, it is all completely perplexing to me. I, mm. I do not understand most of how British infrastructure is supposed to work. And even after being here for six years, it still doesn't make sense. Oh, that's easy. It doesn't. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, but but everyone expects me because I'm British and I yeah. sound British mm-hmm. to get on like, with it. To just yeah. to just to understand that this is done like this and that is done like that, and I don't. Mm-hmm. It's a very yeah. it's a very odd experience to basically be an immigrant but being mistaken for a native all the time. Yeah, no, I see that. I can completely understand that. I, I suppose I feel that more and more every time I visit my family, where it's sort of like, you know, right. every, every time I go back, it looks slightly different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some new thing that I'm not aware of. And, you know, it, it, I can just kind of feel it slipping out from under my feet, you know? Yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah, um, Britishness. Yeah. Which is a very odd institution because I don't what? really understand it. I don't think that so I, that I've got this kind of joke that my partner um, says that he we're doing this thing that he calls advanced Britishness where he'll like make me watch like shows from the 70s or like mm. the 80s so that I um, can kind of like understand references because so there's things that I lack right so mm. when I first moved here because I've been living in Sydney for three years when I first moved here and when I was in Sydney I had a pub quiz team and we went out every Wednesday night I was basically hung over every Thursday for most of my early 20s. It was fantastic, you know, and we were, we were great. We were a really good pub quiz team. So I moved to London, I was like, that's it, I'm gonna get the pub quiz team going again. And I couldn't do a British pub quiz. I didn't no. know like who was famous. I didn't understand like anything about, you know, sport. Like I, I simply couldn't do it. And I can kind of do it now. Um, I, I lack the interest in football. That's kind of like required. Yeah. Uh, for, I, like, I, I simply don't have it. I don't have it. And it's, I'm very glad that other people like football. I'm not, again, trying to, you know, yuck their yum, have a great time, everybody. I don't get it. I'm never going to be able to answer those questions. But I now understand like esoteric British celebrities and things like that. But someone needs to sit me down and be like, here, this is the good life. You've got to watch the good life. You know, things like that. There's a very good book by, I think her name is Kate Fox. I Mm. think it's called The English. Um, and it's basically like a 
sociological study or, or mm. ethnolo- ethnological study of Englishness. And I, all sorts of things she said there in that book, I knew, but I didn't mm. know that I knew. For instance, if you're right. ordering in a bar, you, mm. you'll indicate to the barman that you're ready to order another drink. Mm. But under no circumstances does your elbow leave the bar. You do not lift your your elbow off the bar when when waving at the barman that you want to drink. And I don't know why. That's interesting. Okay. But you just simply don't. And I have I have been in a bar when it really crowded and you're desperate to get the person's attention. And literally my shoulder is locking up from the force <laughs> of keeping my elbow on the bar. But you I have never been told, don't take your elbow off the bar. I just know instinctively, intuitively, and at a deep cellular level that you don't do it. How interesting. I'm not even sure if I've noticed this. I'm like, I'm wondering if I do this or not. Now I'm going to have to. But you're foreign. You can do what you want. Yeah, I can do what I want. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so I'm also kind of like desperate to not be seen as foreign. This is a really interesting thing, right? Ah, I get get quite bent out of shape when people try to explain things to me. Okay. Uh, Because I I don't. (laughs) I don't want them to, right? And it, it, but it's quite funny because it goes like one way or another. Because obviously in London, you know, someone with my accent is not interesting. It's just sort of like, yeah, sure, go about your day. But you know, if I go see my in-laws up in Derby, you know, it's like a riot breaks out every time, like I'm at the bar. But people quite like, yeah, my foreignness. I was like, oh, well, that that's quite interesting. Or you know, I've noticed the same thing if I'm up in like uh, Northumberland, places like that. It's like, oh, that's like very interesting. Um, got a lot of stick about it in Liverpool. People were not happy about me and and then so really yeah yeah about because you're you sound american yeah yeah and i think that they must be very tired of uh people on a beatles tour or something uh it's kind of the impression that i got and i was sort of like well this is very unfair because you know all i want is a pint and like to, to sort of be left to my own devices and you know sometimes people ask and sometimes they don't but you know or sometimes even when they do ask you know and i'll say yeah i've been here for 15 years or something like that you know when then they say goodbye they'll say like oh yeah enjoy your holiday (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and i'm like no just, all right you know th- th- things like that you know and, and that i will kind of get my back up about it but you know there's nothing i can do about the accent just sort of it is what it is you know when you're and you're stuck with it at a certain and it, point. i mean you could train out of it but it would be very weird and artificial to do so yeah and it, it would be i would be doing it on purpose and i think it's just a bit wanky in it like yeah it's trying too hard so i'm not going to do that but yeah but that in it was pure london See, there you go, right? So I got those things. I've got, like, my slang and things like that. That's, that's the odd thing about me is that my slang is sort of, well, it is rather British, you know, but... Rather? Yeah. I would say so. I would say so. You know, like... <laughs> well, you know what we need to do? We need to bring back that weird transatlantic um, accent that existed just for movies when they'll be like, what I say? Okay. <laughs> you know, things like that, that you, like existed in all movies in, like, the 60s. Yeah. Like, early 60s. I loved that. That was quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're right about that kind of like that harping back to sort of a nostalgic view of like imperial power. Mm, right? Mm. Well if you think when Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt met at Yalta in the Second mm, World War, mm. they met as peers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is simply not true anymore. Nope. Absolutely not. And I think it's quite a funny one because I think, you know, part of what we're kind of going through here in the weird political nature that we find ourselves in at the moment is that people can't let that go. Um, And and it's just like, that's not the world that exists anymore. But every British person should live in Finland for a while because Finland's never had an empire. And Mm -hmm. so you kind of, you kind of 
stop valuing that sort of thing so much. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that I really liked about uh, living in the Czech Republic was it's the same thing. It's like, what are we? Well, we're the kings of beer, all right? <laughs> like, uh, Czech beer is very good. It's very good. Prosim, people. People, exactly. Got great. Perfect. Yeah. All you need to know to get by. But well, uh, yeah. And, and check away. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, um, you know, and I, I always Don't kind of like polite. teach people, you know, like, you know, just please thank you, hello, goodbye, you know, and then and we'll like it if you try. But yeah, that the, the, the desire to kind of like really rule, you know, doesn't exist in the same way because it just never did. You know, there's sure. more of a desire for autonomy than anything yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Actually, complete change of direction. I have a note here, something I meant to ask you earlier when we were talking about lots of future oh, sex. Yeah. Do yeah. you mention Inanna? And the risk go. No, I don't. Um, and annoyingly, this is one of the things that kind of got cut. Oh, okay. It was in there, yeah. but it, it got cut. Yeah, it got cut. Because yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah. epic that the earliest written poetry we know of in human history was written by a woman? Yeah, I think that it's so interesting because um, there is something here about, uh, you, know, you know, kind of the privileging of like writing and how that works and in many ways i think now we do see kind of writing as as kind of a feminized labor i think there's more and more women writers that seem as kind of like more and more a, a feminine thing but who gets through a lot of the times doesn't work that way but um you know i do think that there is something to be said about you know a woman's eye on on uh the world and, and how things work you know and i was i was trying to link between that um, and, you know, when you look, for example, at what Hildegard of Bingen writes about mm -hmm. women as opposed to, you know, what... Uh, I don't what know. does she write about women? Um, very uh, different things to her male peers, like when we're talking about, like, the nature of the sexes, for example. So if you're talking about sex itself, it's quite funny because there's, you know, a lot of emphasis on the fact that, like, women are poisonous to a certain extent. So it's like menses are poisonous and menses are pent-up sperm that women haven't... Um, ejaculated and, <sighs> and you know and they are also kind of like um all these foul humors that have built up and then they need to be like expelled and and so women are kind of like vaguely poisonous um hildegard doesn't think so hildegard thinks men are poisonous and she's like it's men seeming that it's poisonous and women um, are kind of a contrary effusion that can calm all of that down and like when when Hildegard writes about like women's sexuality, she writes about it as being kind of like gentle and kind of like nurturing, and you know all these very well, honestly, things. that's almost as bad. It is. That's why I try to make that point. I don't like it either. Yeah. But but it's contrary to what men write, which is that sure. women women are a stupid horny have like forest fire, is what men right. say. Is whereas like women's sexuality is like burns things up, and Hildegard's like no no it's and my, I try to kind of thread the needle and be like neither of these things are good. But it's quite interesting if you ask women because they're kind of like coming from a completely different perspective at the same time. Um, and I don't think that, you know, I don't think it's great to kind of look at women as gentle and nurturing in and of themselves. Um, no. I think that that's just kind of like going too hard down the Marian route, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Like just kind of the, oh, like Mary as a role model for all women, which, you know. Yeah. But, you know, God bless I mean, her, you know. Fine, fine, fine if you resonate with that personally. Mm -hmm. but not as a general role model. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. Not going to be me, no. You might as well have Joan of Arc as a role model for women. Exactly, exactly, right? Which also probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also probably not good for us, because, you know, there are, yeah. the, Joan of Arc was not famous for her mothering skills, and honestly, no. mothers are important. 
Yeah, exactly. And we like them, actually. Yes. They, they are good. It's just that there needs to be more than one model, you know. It's yeah. like, it's exactly the same, like, bringing it right around to looking at, you know, the monarchy. It's like no one's saying that, like, you know, it's not good to be king necessarily. It's just if that's your only option, it sucks. No one's saying that it's not good to be a mother. It's just if that's your only option and the be and end all, that that's the problem, you know. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me today, Alan. It's been lovely to see you again. It's a delight to be back as always, and hopefully I'll be back with, you know, having got further along in my next project. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eleanor. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Robert Childs about competing at the highest level in rapier tournaments. And he also has a book out called Revelations of Rapier, which we shall discuss in some detail. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.